0: Well, this morning we've gathered to do an important thing and an ordinance thing that we do as a church. We celebrate communion together. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together, two church ordinances. And today I want to direct your attention before we do that to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Thank you. Well, if you've been here on Sunday morning... You know, we've been working our way through the gospel of Luke. And if you've not, I want to invite you back because we have an objective. One big overarching objective in this study is that we would see Jesus accurately from an eyewitness standpoint. What was it that Jesus actually said and did? Now, all of us in this room have been influenced sometimes biblically, but we're also observed by traditions, things that we've picked up or things that the culture conveys, all kinds of conjecture about what Jesus is like. All these ideas influence how we think. But what do the eyewitnesses actually experience and say? And furthermore, this whole notion of Christianity. In fact, I say every Sunday morning we have people in this room who ex- are exploring the idea of Christianity They're not quite sure. And some of you think you know everything there is to know about it. But do you know what the Scriptures actually say about what it means to be identified with Jesus as a follower of him? What does the Bible teach us? What spiritually happens to you when you trust Christ? What is this thing that is called a new life or new birth. What is it? Well, Romans 6 is a place where we can look to where the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to this church in Rome. And he wanted them to understand a little bit about baptism and how it fits. And I know that you've come today to witness this. This is exactly why we've gathered together. But I want you to understand why we celebrate this so passionately. And we do celebrate it. So let's look at Romans 6. And I want you to understand what you're witnessing. Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, you'll notice right off the bat, Paul begins with a series of questions. I'm going to get into why these questions are here. But right up front, I also want you to understand what you're going to witness today. You're witnessing an act of obedience, both by the individual and by us as a church. When Christ told his followers in Matthew chapter 28, to go into all the world and make disciples, he said, baptizing them. So that's what we do. We follow in obedience individually, and as a church, we do this out of the great commission that Christ compelled us to do. And you're also witnessing this. You're witnessing something that's happening in a moment. It's a physical picture Of an already existing spiritual reality. It's already taken place. No amount of water over here is going to generate anything. It does not save anyone. But it does point to something. And that something is what you and I need to understand. So as we look at this text today. You have your bulletin. You can look at it on the screen. Or hopefully you have your Bible. I want to show you what Paul wanted us to understand as he launches into these questions. Question number one, you see this, what shall we say then? Now, you're dropped right into the middle of the book with a question, what shall we say then? Obviously, we'd say, well, to what? What shall we say then to what? Well, this looks back at what has been previously discussed in chapter 5, And actually what was being discussed prior to that in the first five chapters of Romans. Where Paul lays out that the human condition is dire, hopelessly actually dire. We sin, we sin more, we're blind to our sin and our own personal destructive habits. We make up our own rules as we go along, we increasingly celebrate what God would condemn. We trade truth for error, even denying the existence of truth. And if you find yourself sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, that sounds familiar in our culture today. That's what people do. What's what those people do. Listen up. You're lumped into that dire situation as well because of pride Because of self-righteousness and your blindness, our blindness to it. And by the time we get to chapter 5 of Romans, we understand unless God acted in his sovereign grace, there's not going to be any hope of right standing with God. All have sinned and all stand condemned. Now, I know hearing this this morning, that's hard-hitting. It's alarming. It even may make you angry to be told that you're a sinner by nature and by choice. Nevertheless, there's this and there's nothing you can do about it. That there's no amount of your effort, your moral goodness will ever make an appease to God. It's hard to hear that your only hope is outside of you in God's Rescue plan, which you and I had nothing to do with. And then there's the second question that Paul jumps in. In fact, in the first three verses, he has four questions. Look at the second question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, this is further indication from Paul's argument of just how misunderstood the teaching about God's grace is all about. It was confusing then, still is today. And the conclusion some were making was this. Since the gospel is so radical, Paul, are you saying then that if it's all grace and You need grace to cover sin, and God's grace is unmeasurable. If we just sin more, that means just more grace. So the way we make much of God's grace is we just keep sinning more and more. And this was a conclusion that some were making. It was so startling that it had absolutely nothing to do with man's moral performance, that it was a logical conclusion that if that was the case, then if God acted in his sovereign grace and you just sin, you just keep giving yourself to what your appetite is all about, that drives you, and the marvelous grace will just cover it, just cover it bigger and bigger and bigger, so make much of God's grace. Paul has an answer to that. Look there with me in verse 2. He says, By no means. By no means. Now, I want to give you a modern translation of by no means. He's basically saying, You don't get it. You don't get it. You're way off track. He then continues, Do you not know? He asks a question in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Do you not know? And I think that what Paul was asking here was logical because the Romans did not know. And I contend that we likewise often don't really know. We don't understand. Now you've heard me talk, if you've known me very long, I talk about the difference between ignorance and stupidity. All right? There's a difference. Ignorance is not knowing. And Paul's saying, do you not know? It's not knowing. Ignorance is curable, stupid is to the bone. All right? There is a difference. So, in this particular case though, you've heard it said ignorance is bliss, ignorance is not bliss. You and I need to understand what is Paul wanting us to grasp that is ours in Christ Jesus when we trust him and water baptism points to. So before we hear the testimonies of those that are going to be baptized and we celebrate this together, I want to clear some confusion. I want to remove any doubt about what baptism, spiritual baptism, what it means to be placed into Christ, what that's all about. And what this physical act that we do, what it shows us, what it points to. And I was thinking as I was preparing this week, I was reminded when I say it points to, how many of you grew up being taught that pointing was rude? All right. All right. Some of you have no clue, but guys, I'm telling you, I grew up this way. In fact, my preaching professor told us, whatever whatever you do, see me do it? I just did it, all right? Whatever you do, don't point at your audience, all right? Don't use your finger and certainly don't use that finger, all right? Don't point. Now, why is that? So I got on the Google machine a couple days ago and just looked it up. Like, what is this thing? Why is it? Well, the article I read said, because it is considered rude in many cultures, including in America, because it's associated with blame allocation, to point a finger at. Also, by pointing at someone, you are automatically, and without their consent, making them an object of scrutiny. Well, guess what? We're going to point at something today. We're going to point at water baptism as it points to something wonderful, something that you need to be reminded of. And as a Christian, we hold as primary, fundamental. So what does water baptism, what does baptism point to? Number one, baptism points to Christ's death and your sin's death with him. In verse 3, when Paul said, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul is saying this. You need to know that those who are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death. Now, this word baptism is a church word. But it comes from a Greek word. It's transliterated. It basically means to immerse the reason why we immerse is because that is the literal meaning of the word. To place in, to immerse in. So when Christ died on the cross, Paul is saying this. If you have considered yourself a follower of Christ and you have trusted him as your savior, you died with him. When he went to the cross, you that part of you that would separate you from God from all, for all eternity, your spiritual death went to the cross with Christ. He paid a penalty there that he did not owe for you. He defeated the penalty of sin, which is death for you. He did it for you. This is about identity language. When you look at baptism, it's pointing to identity language. The Christian life is never, ever casually connected to Jesus. That's why you're going to hear, often hear, that you should be carefully looking at your life. You should be evaluating if you are casual about Jesus or are you connected to him. See, because the reality is that you and I will physically continue to live. But when we know Christ, when you trust him, your life is immersed in him in his death. He went as your substitute. You are buried with him. That's what, why we go under the water, buried as into a grave, enveloping you, taking you, which water points to. It points to the grave. As Christ died, we too died with him. Paul said it another way in another place in his, his letter to the Galatian church where he said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when you witness baptism, you are observing a physical picture of an already existing spiritual reality for those who have trusted Christ. Our sins penalty was borne by Jesus. And he died. And as he died, our spiritual death died with him. See, for Christians... If you wonder, like for Christians, Jesus is far more than a good teacher. He's no founder of just a new religion. Somehow that he's, he's an establisher of a new f- moral framework where you follow the golden rule. You try not to hurt anyone. You try to do the best you can. You try to be a good moral citizen. Nothing wrong with any of that, but that will not put you right with God. I'm convinced there'll be a great deal of surprise in hell by many moral people. Good folk who are separated from God for all eternity. There will be no surprise as to why. It will be because there was no Jesus. See, to be a Christian is to be identified with Jesus. To be identified in his death. When he died, the life you have known. That life, that part of you that lives for self, that part of you that basically really wants to run your own show, that part of you that kind of thinks, although you never really say it, I'm kind of chumming with God when I need something. Where you make God into your own image but you keep living life your own way. That life died with Jesus at the cross. That life and the consequences of that life died with Jesus on the cross. So when you think about your identity as a Christian, you must first see your identity with Christ in his death for you. But there's a second thing that baptism points to. It's this. Baptism points not only to Christ's death, but to Christ's resurrection. Baptism points to Christ's resurrection and the certainty of yours. Verse 3 is not the end of Paul's instructions. Just think just for a moment. Look at the text again. Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Question mark. What if it stopped right there? Christ died for me. We often, I find Christians, honestly, we talk about Christ's death because because we know that our spiritual death exists. We're separated from God without him. So we talk a lot about Christ paying the price on the cross for our sin. But do you know and do you fully understand That the Apostle Paul did not stop with Christ's death. Neither should you. He says here, Paul is telling us, death is not the end. See, death in Scripture, when you see this term, death is not about annihilation. Death literally means separation, separation from life, separation from God. Yes, it's the end of being condemned for sin. Yes, the end of being an object of God's wrath without Christ. But it's a gateway to something wholly different. Christ paid the price for a resurrected life for you. A new life. Christ paying the penalty for your sin is fundamental. But it's never separated from Christ's resurrection. And it's never separated from yours. As Christ died and was resurrected, you too are resurrected with him. The death and resurrection of Christ are never separated. You shouldn't either. New life begins now. Right now. You were made for more than now. New life now, made for more than now. Yes, both and are true of the believer in Christ. New life now. Yes, resurrected life forever. It's coming. You were made for more. And he puts it this way in verse 4, the the second part of verse 4. Look with me. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory or the word, that word glory means power by the power of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism points to death and resurrection. Do you know that the book of Hebrews in the Bible tells us that it's appointed to man once to die and after that comes judgment. Death and resurrection are in store for every human being, every person. Whether you be tall or short, Young, old, whether you consider yourself liberal or conservative, rich or poor, death is awaiting. It's a march we are all making. We don't like to think about it. We actually know we have it one day in pencil, but do you know that God has it in ink? A day that's appointed for you. And I know as I stand here this morning, this sounds radical. Brian, you're talking about hellfire and brimstone. No, I'm talking about the reality of death for all of us. Does it sound radical? Yes, it's radical. It's radical that a holy God would do for you what you can never do. Make you holy before him and give you a destiny far better than anything that you can dream up. And I know there are people who sit in this room today. You've got things going on in your life that the person next to you doesn't know about. I certainly don't know about. You know you're wrestling with it. You have hidden deep inside you fear. You also have the reality in your life upon close inspection that your life actually looks like you have very little regard for God. You really do want a life of your own making. But you also know what that has proven to be in your life. It's proven to be a dead end. And right now you are feeling like you might be sitting in a pile of ash or headed toward it. And if you're honest, you might have spent a good deal of your life pointing at God, blaming God. If God was good, he would do something about this for you. Does God have anything to say to you? Remember at the beginning of the message, I said that Romans 6, 1, that begins with a question, what shall we say then to what? Well, this question looks back to chapter 5. And I want to invite you to look at chapter 5, verse 8. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's also on the screen. Paul there writes, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you sit here and you wonder, could God really love me? Yes. Right where you are, pointing at God in the pile of ash that you make, God sees you. God loves you and he's proven it in the gift of Christ. A path of making you right with him. The only way to make you right with him. See, Christ paying the price for your sin. Water baptism points to that. It's an invitation as well For you to consider that in Christ you die and you're buried, but we don't leave you underwater. You're raised to walk a new life. That new life happens now. In fact, he calls to us now. He calls to the person who sits in this room who's been a believer much of your life. But frankly, this has become almost old hat to you. Part of our sinful condition is we get so we're just kind of numb to everything. Water baptism points that you have been raised. And there is a physical resurrection coming in your life. And I want to tell you, there's no magic sinner's prayer this morning that I want to ask you to utter. There's not. Just the right words that you say and all is well. No, following Christ is an invitation for you today to confess your need, to confess your need that you are a sinner, that you are separated from God. And you need a new life. You need a resurrected life right now. And there's one person That takes the throne of your life. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I know this morning that each of us, each of us are reminded that there is an appointed time for us to die. And there will be a time we stand before you. And today we celebrate the reality that we can stand righteous before you because of Jesus and nothing else. We pray that you draw individuals to you today who long for new life, who long for resurrection, for a new birth, for a new beginning. Oh God, give that to them today. And as we celebrate the testimony and the water baptism that points to the death and resurrection of Christ and ours with him, O oh Lord, may we celebrate as your people. May we rejoice we belong to you. We thank you that you've taken care of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.